Uh, welcome, Pastor Jake, and it's a joy to serve you this morning. Uh, we're starting a, a brief three-week series uh, designed to, to, to look at and to celebrate God's design of and purpose for His church, starting with God's people broadly and then focusing down into the local church and even down further into smaller group communities. And those relationships that we share together with one another as we work to bring clarity and definition to who we are as a church. And it's important for us to kind of circle back to some of these foundational things regularly. And part of our hope in these next few weeks and beyond is to see some renewed, uh, some new and renewed uh, connection to this local body. And maybe we'll see some of you even put down roots and and, and belong here among us as members, maybe for the first time, or, or perhaps join a com, uh, and invest some time and commit to participation in one of our community groups as we foster healthy Christ-centered discipleship relationships. So that's our, our hope. It'll be three messages. I'm opening this morning, and then Pastor Charlie will take the next two, kind of building on one another. And we're going to start with this reality of asking the question, what does it mean to be God's people? So if you have a, you'll, need, you'll want a Bible. If you have one, grab it. If you need one, you can raise your hand and, and some of our folks from our strike team can put one in your hands. Like I said, we're going to start asking the question, what does it mean to be God's people? And to do that, we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. You can find it on page 657 in the Bibles that we're handing out. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. It'll be on the screen as well. But let's read. Verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for giving us your word in your wisdom. Have preserved it and provided it for us that it, by your spirit it might teach us and equip us for all the things you'd call us to. Would you encourage our hearts now as your word gives us a clear picture of who we are according to you and how we're to live in light of who we are. Help me to be faithful and speak by your Spirit to your people through your Word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. Now, because we're not teaching through all of First Peter, let me give you a little context as to where these two verses fit into what Peter is writing here. Peter is writing to believers in exile. We learned that right at the beginning. If you go to 1 Peter 1, he, he writes, to the elect exiles. What's happening here in the first century is immense persecution, uh, trouble, and trial, and, and arrests, and beatings, and 
accusations against all those who would claim to be followers of Jesus. And the result of this persecution is that God's people are scattered to find safety and and safe haven. They are hiding out in places that aren't where they used to be. And so they're discouraged and beaten down and dispersed. Exiles. And Peter is reminding God's people, in the midst of great trial, he's reminding them, I want to remind you, this is who you are. This is, these are God's promises, and they are sure and, and strong, and they don't waver. So in the midst of your trials, let me encourage you in, in God's promises, he's faithful to keep them, and in who you are as God's people. That's, I think, what Peter is, is encouraging them to consider who they really are. And in seeing who they are, they'll gain perspective in the midst of their trials and, in fact, even find purpose. How do I live in the midst of all of this in light of who I am? So that's what I think Peter is saying to the church here in 1 Peter 2. And what I want to tell you this morning is this, that knowing and embracing your true spiritual identity gives clarity to your purpose. To say it another way, knowing who you are called to be, and in light of that, knowing then what you're commissioned to do. So our title today is this, God's people are a called and commissioned people. And if we can, let's just interact a bit, okay? Group participation. How would you answer this question? If I were to ask you, who are you? Or maybe, depending on my inflection, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? No, how do you describe yourself? Your name, your, your job or vocation? What, what are some of the ways? If I said, who are you? How do you describe yourself? Say that again. Okay, some of, some of the... Okay, give me an example. Pinterest projects, right? How else do you describe yourself? I'm a grandma. Mom, I'm a child of the king. A wife? A nerd. I'm a nerd, <laughs> right? That's a good one, right? I have a couple friends who uh, happen to work for the federal government. And so right now they're like, I think I have a job, right? We, we identify ourselves by those things, right? Our name, our job, maybe our hobby, things we like or things we aspire to, right? In relation to others, I'm a father, I'm a son, I'm a dad, I'm a husband. And so, but we also identify sometimes in things in contrast, right? Not just things that we are, but things that we're, we're not. This happens in our home in this way, right? Our favorite football team is the Vikings, and I know I'm a glutton for punishment, and I know it's borderline child abuse that I would raise my children to be Vikings fans, I get it. Well, our second favorite team happens to be whoever's playing the Packers. So we identify in our house. We identify. We love the Ides most. We identify in our house as, as anti-Packers. You guys might identify. You might identify as anti-Vikings, right? We identify in relation to something we're not. Now, you might not be sportsy at all. But you might be very, very particular about how you like your coffee prepared. Like, Folgers to you is a bad word, right? Or maybe that's not it at all. Maybe, maybe you have very unique music tastes, 
right? And this Venn diagram is you, right? Very particular. I don't know what it is for you. See, it's setting in. Some of you are like, oh. See, this is the difference between like a, someone who's kind of a geek or a nerd about something. Like they like their coffee in a certain way or they like certain kinds of music. It's the difference between like a geek and a snob, right? I've been accused of both as it relates to coffee and other things. See, we use lots of things to describe ourselves. Not only to self-identify, who am I, but also to identify to others. Here's who I am. So to both tell others who we are and to understand ourselves. We identify by both what we are and what we are not. And this is important. Because who we are, or who we think we are, shapes how we see our purpose. Who you think you are gives you motivation to your everyday. And God's word here in 1 Peter is helping shape God's people, not according to how they see themselves, but how God sees them. And that's important. See, Peter starts with a contrast. He, he, he's telling God's people who they're not. And then he ends in verse 10 with a contrast, telling God's people, this is who you used to be. And then in the middle, in verse 9, he says, and this is who you are now. So we're going to look at it this way. The contrast of who God's people are not who, who, and who they used to be. And then who God's people truly are. And then what it means for how we live. So that's kind of our, our flow, my line of thought here this morning. So in case you get lost, you can find the map back to where we're going. And so point one is this. It's what I'm calling the contrast. Understanding your identity means knowing who you are not, and it means knowing who you used to be. Look at verse 9. Peter says this. But you. But you is a, is a contrasting phrase. The but is saying, what I'm telling you now is different from what I just told you. It's this, but... And in the verses right before our text, verses 6 through 8, Peter is unpacking a little bit of this idea of a cornerstone. And he's saying, Jesus is the cornerstone for some And he's a stumbling block for others. For some, Jesus is the center part of what all life is built on. And for some, they'll just trip over him. He's referencing the prophet Isaiah, writing 800 plus odd years before the birth of Christ, foretelling that the coming Messiah would be a, a living stone, a, a cornerstone upon which God would build his spiritual temple. He would build his people. This is what the Messiah is going to be, a cornerstone. And Peter's saying, well, that's, that's Jesus. And for those who then belong to Jesus, then he's their cornerstone. And for those who don't belong to Jesus, he's not their cornerstone. They don't build their life on him. They trip over him. They fail to see the glory of God in Christ Jesus. And so... Christ is not a precious stone. He's a stumbling block. So when Peter says, but you, he's helping his hearers to understand who they are not. Because they have not stumbled. In the midst of all their trials and, and, and persecutions and danger, Peter's encouraging them to say, but you treasure him. 
but he's your cornerstone. This is not you. And that's an encouragement. And he goes on. And Peter also tells us here is to remember, this is who you used to be. Look at verse 10. Peter says, this used to be you. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You used to be scattered and disorganized and lost, but now you're not. Now, I don't know uh, what your footnotes say, but in mine, my footnotes in verse 10 take me back to the prophet Hosea. Now, we, we don't have time to fully unpack Hosea. I'm going to give you a little snapshot. And as an aside, if you have time this week, I'd encourage you just to sit down. You can do it in one sitting and just read through the prophet Hosea. Read through the book. It's, it's excellent. Because God told Hosea, here's the background. God told Hosea to go and marry a woman who was guaranteed to be unfaithful to him. I mean, remarkably unfaithful. And he was supposed to love her and cherish her and go after her and actually buy her back when she was sold into into slavery to another. Further, Hosea had children. And as often we read in the Old Testament, when we understand that children were often named, uh, their names meant something related to their situation, Hosea's children's names, his daughter, her name meant no mercy, without mercy. And his son, his name was not my people. Did you catch that? The meaning of his children's names were without mercy and not my people. Like, that's harsh. Bless you. And God was showing Israel through Hosea, through this prophet, I just want you to understand the depth of your unfaithfulness, Israel. And through Hosea, God was telling and showing. He's saying, but I am faithful. I will buy you back. I will give mercy to the undeserving and welcome you in. And God redeemed Hosea's wife and his children to show, I do this, that those who were once under judgment would now receive undeserved mercy. And here's the beautiful picture. Peter is tying this to New Testament believers. He's like, this isn't just about Hosea and Israel. He's saying, you were once not a people, and now you're God's people. Jews and Gentiles mixed together, God has made you his own. And so to understand our identity, to understand who you are as God's people, we need to understand who we once were in contrast to who we are now. And I know it's not the most encouraging thing to think about, And we don't need to dwell here, but let me ask. Do we consider who we once were? Do we? For me, I think it happens far too easily to see someone else faltering or someone else in sin or struggling. And my first thought far too often is like, at least I'm not there. Do you do that? I do. In the early 1500s, there was an English reformer named John Bradford. And it's attributed to him that as often as he would see criminals march through the street, which was often the practice, uh, 
criminals would get their day in court, judgment would be handed down, and they would be literally marched down the main streets of the town to off in the center of town to be executed, hanged or beheaded, and paraded through town as like a show of like, this is what happens when you do bad things. And as often as this would happen, it's attributed to Bradford that as criminals were being marched down the street, he would exclaim, but for the grace of God, there goes John Bradford. If not for God's grace, there goes Jake Peterson. And you can fill in the blank. See, Bradford was keenly aware of his needfulness for the mercy of God. He knew where he was without God's grace. And this is what Peter's doing. Peter is saying, in order to know who you are, I want you to remember who you were. It's a vital part of understanding our identity. This is who you are not. This is who you were. And then Peter starts to build on top of that and says, and this is who you are. So point one is the contrast, understanding who you used to be. Point two is this, that there are characteristics of the called, that understanding your identity also means knowing who you are now. Look at verse nine again. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Peter's bringing out the big guns here. He's had a lot of Old Testament references, uh, Isaiah and the Psalms and, and Hosea. And here he's, he, this is like the piece de resistance, right? He's like saying, oh, I have this argument too. Boom. Exodus chapter 19. Verses 5 and 6. Let me read for you what Exodus chapter 19 verses 5 and 6 say. And it'll be on the screen as well. This is God speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Here's what's happening. God has just rescued the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt. And he has drawn them all to the mountain. They're all scattered at the base of the mountain. God calls Moses up, and then God speaks to Moses, which on its own, I I can't even comprehend how amazing that is, just the situation. And God tells Moses basically this, go tell all the people that I just freed from slavery. Tell them that the covenant that I made with Abraham, the promise that I gave Abraham to make him a people and to be his God and to bless him so that he might be a blessing to the nations, the covenant I made with Abraham and then renewed with his son Isaac and then renewed with his son Jacob, that covenant I am now making and renewing with all of you people. God is telling them, not just a family, but all of you, you are my people. And Peter is saying, this is why this is a big deal. Peter is saying to all these believers, all the glory and the blessing and the honor that's reserved for the unique people of God, that God gives his people in Exodus chapter 19. He's saying, that's for you. 
I mean, look around for a second. River City Church, you might look around and be like, I don't see a whole lot special here. I mean, we're, we're just us. Big deal. No, no, no. All that it meant to be God's cherished people on the earth. Peter is saying, this is now yours. In Christ Jesus, you receive the same honor and glory reserved for God's people because you are God's people. For you and me, this means that we are partakers. We are participants in the covenant promises of God through Christ Jesus. We are. Little old us. So when Paul says in 2 Corinthians, when he says all the promises of God, all of them, find their yes in Jesus, that means it applies to us. So let me say this again. Church, you, followers of Jesus, you are a recipient of the glory and honor reserved for the people of God. Unique in the world. And then Peter outlines what are those characteristics? What makes God's people God's people? And here's how he defines their uniqueness. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We're going to look at each one of those briefly. First, chosen race. This one is perhaps the most simple to comprehend and perhaps the most profound. And let me ask you this. A little introspection. Do you feel isolated? Are you someone who finds yourself, even in the midst of a crowd, feeling very much alone? Study after study shows that we are the most connected generation in the history of humanity. The access we have to one another and to information is unprecedented. And yet, we continue to be the most emotionally disconnected and isolated and depressed especially in the West. Why are those things happening? Part of what it means to be God's people is that in His infinite wisdom and according to His mercy alone, He sought you out. He sought you out. You've been adopted. You are loved. You are included. You belong. Maybe the only thing you need to hear today as a follower of Jesus is this. You belong. Part of your identity as one of God's people is that you belong. You're loved. But it isn't just chosen. It's this chosen race. Now race here, this word used, is the word that's used for an ethnic identity. And we just saw, if you were with us in Advent, at the, the last uh, uh, sermon in our Advent series where we looked at this glorious picture that on the last day uh, before the throne of God will one day be worshiping some from every tribe, tongue, language, and people. What a beautiful mosaic of God's people worshiping before the throne. But Peter here is calling out something other than just our ethnic identity. 
The kind of chosen race he's talking about isn't about ethnic identity. It's about spiritual identity. Peter's saying, as it relates to our spiritual identity, there are really just two races. Those who belong to God through Christ and those who don't. So when Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 that in Christ there's no longer division. There's not Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female. All are one in Christ. What he's saying in that is not that there aren't differences. There are beautiful differences among us. But in Christ, according to who Christ is and who we are in him, we are one. Period. We are one chosen spiritual race. So the question again is asked, how do you see yourself? How how do you see a brother or sister or a a, a neighbor differently when you see that you're part of one beloved people that God has chosen for himself and that in him we are one together? You're a chosen race. Peter continues. He says, you're a royal priesthood. In Exodus 19, Moses uses the phrase kingdom of priests. It basically is the same thing. And maybe, maybe you don't have a context or a framework for the word priest. Maybe if you grew up Roman Catholic, you might have an idea of how the word priest was used in context, but, but that might not be the most helpful for us here. In, in the Old Testament, the priests are the one who offered sacrifices. They're the ones who tended to the temple. They're the ones who brought worship before God on behalf of the people. And Peter says, no, 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 you are a royal priesthood. The whole lot of you. That is, you as a people, you are the ones who bring worship before God. It's a part of who you are. Now, we also know that our sacrifices aren't bulls and goats. Like, we're not bringing up a goat here and bleeding it out on on the front on Sunday morning. Weird. It's not, that's not what we're called to, but as, as priests, we bring sacrifices of praise. Hebrews chapter 13, right? We present our bodies. Paul commands us in Romans 12. We present our whole bodies as living sacrifices that God might work through us to accomplish his purposes on the earth. We worship in spirit and in truth. John chapter 4. We sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another, making melody in our hearts to God. Ephesians chapter 5. We have access to the Father, to the creator of the universe, because when Christ died, the wall between God and his people was torn in two so that we can come to him with confidence. We are a kingdom of priests. And not just priests, but royal priests. And again, we're a constitutional republic in America, not a monarchy. So royalty, like we're, we're enamored with the royal family in Great Britain, but at the end of the day, we could really care less because it doesn't have any bearing on our lives. But what Peter's talking about here is not a, an earthly royalty, an earthly authority. Peter's saying, I think what Peter's saying is this, You are robed in the righteousness of Christ. Psalm 132.9 says, Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Christ is righteous. Christ is holy. Christ is perfect and pure. And in him, 
you wear, you are covered by his righteousness. It's his righteousness that makes the vile honorable. It's his righteousness that takes the filthy and the unclean and washes the unclean and covers the unclean with his perfection. It means that you are now qualified to offer sacrifice to God. You are qualified to enter the presence of God because you are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Think about that. In Christ, you are qualified. He's not going to strike you down for being unclean because you are clean in him. You are a royal priesthood. Chosen race, royal priesthood. And Peter says you're a holy nation. Holy is a big deal to God. God alone is holy. Holy means pure and perfect. It's only God who's holy and only God who can make what is not holy, holy. And in Exodus 19, God is, one of the things he's doing is he's telling his people, I'm setting you apart. I'm, I'm, I'm pulling you away from all the other connections and all the other things that would mark you as a people. You're going to be my people. And the word used is consecrated. He sets them apart and makes them unique. They're made pure. And the privilege of being set apart is not just in Exodus 19. It's for you. You, as a follower of Jesus, you are being and have been set apart. See, we're all keenly aware of our shortcomings and sins. We just studied in 1 John, right? If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We acknowledge they exist. We are made holy and are being made holy. This is the position and the privilege of the people of God. This is your position and privilege as a follower of Jesus. Do do you know? I mean, do you think about it for a second? Do you know that you are covered in the righteousness of Christ? Covered. Surrounded. Hidden, if you will. That to clothe you, to cover you, God has washed away your sins. That, That sin no longer holds sway and power over you. Do you know that? In Christ, you are included as part of a holy nation set apart by God. And finally, Peter says, you are a people for his own possession. I like the way the King James translates this this phrase. He says, you're a peculiar people. It's like a badge of honor to be weird. Some of you like that. Like, I like being weird. Well, there you are. You're peculiar. You belong to someone else. Verse 10, once you were not a people, now you are God's people. See, John 10 says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And then Jesus says this, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. There is a sureness in belonging to God. No longer wandering. You can say with confidence, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Does it give you confidence at all? I think there's a peace to be found in knowing that I'm loved. In spite of myself. That I'm cherished. 
and cared for by a father who is perfect, who knows my faults and loves me because of Christ Jesus. He is always faithful. He will never fail. He will love me to the end. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That. What a great word. That. I know that might seem nerdy, but that here is a really, really good word. The word that is a because. It's a so that. It says, you are these things for this purpose. Integral to the characteristics of the called, who you are, is our third point this morning, the commission of the called. The contrast of who you were, the character now yours in Christ Jesus, and the commission, what you've been called to. That understanding who you are is inseparable. We cannot separate it from what you now do and how you live. But let me phrase it this way. Your identity, my identity as God's people is not just a name tag. It is a job description. It is not just a name tag. It's a job description. You are these things. You are chosen. You are royal. You are holy. You are peculiar. Why? That you may proclaim that you might show forth the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The Greek word here translated as proclaim in your Bible and mine is only used this one time in the whole New Testament. I don't know why. But it has this connotation, this meaning of making known broadly. Taking what is kind of hidden and unknown and projecting it, making it known. And I think as God's people, this happens in a number of ways. We proclaim to one another in preaching, in singing, in reading God's word and in prayers. That's why we approach the Bible the way that we do. God's wisdom is on display, not man's creativity. I'm not creative. Especially not in comparison to what God has done. I might be a little creative. But that's why we approach the scriptures the way that we do. That's why we sing the songs that we sing. Focused on celebrating the full range of God's character, of of God's excellencies. Not merely only our responses to God, although we do respond to Him, but singing to God and praising Him for His greatness. Reminding one another, look what God has done. Look at who He is. That's why we open with God's Word. It's why we pray together corporately. It's why we take communion. It's why we pray again. And that's why we commission out with a blessing every week. We are retelling every week the gospel story. We are reaffirming the covenant that God has established with his people in Christ Jesus. We proclaim to one another. We proclaim in community. Those of you who have people you are connected to in community groups or other places... When we tell each other what God has done, when we say, these are the things I'm praising God for, what are we doing? We are declaring the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. And in those communities, in those contexts where we're saying, 
here's a big area of need for me. I am hurting. I need something here that I cannot produce. I need God to move on my behalf. We're also proclaiming His excellencies when we say that. We're acknowledging, I can't do this. God can. So even when we are expressing our need, we are proclaiming His excellencies when we do that together. It's about God, not about us. When we're at work or school or with our neighbors, when we take the opportunity to express the undeserved goodness of God to us, when we are with our lips are filled with gratitude that this is God's gracious provision in my life, it's God who gets the glory for the promotion It's God who gets the glory for the passing grade or the acceptance letter or the new house. And when our neighbors and coworkers and friends hear that response, we're proclaiming the excellencies of God. When we're able to bless God in the midst of really hard things, in the midst of loss, in the midst of trial, to say, I have lost something great and God is good. That's proclaiming the excellencies of him. It makes God look good. Parents in the room, let me speak to you specifically as one. You are proclaiming the excellencies of God to your children. Our kids know that we are not perfect, probably better than most other people. My kids know I'm a hypocrite. Yours know you are too. This is why I don't proclaim myself. This is why it's not just because I said so. But we proclaim His mercy and His grace because we need it too. And we proclaim, here's His excellencies, that He's merciful and gracious to us so I can be merciful to you and I can lead you in the way that God's given me responsibility to do. And we do it to the lost. We proclaim to the lost when we're able to move out and be stretched out of our comfort zones, and we can be bold with the truth of the gospel, to the people around us who are looking for answers as to why life is the way it is, and we're able to say, I only know one who gives me hope in the midst of trial. I only know one who redeems me from the mess that's all here by itself, and that's Jesus. It's Jesus. Sin has affected us all and there is one solution. No other fount. Only the blood of Jesus. I was talking with a brother last week and he pointed out as we were talking about this passage that it's often easier to receive those four statements about who you are. The name tag ones, right? Chosen, race, royal, priesthood, holy nation, a people belonging to God. Those are easy to receive. We, we like those ones. It's a little harder sometimes to receive than the responsibility that comes with so that you might proclaim. But we can't do that. We can't ignore that part. We can't turn a blind eye to the second part of verse 9. We have to take it all as it is. You want to know what your calling is? Do you want to know what you're called to do? If you're God's people, if you're part of Christ's church, if you're here at River City, if you call this local church your home church, your calling 
is to proclaim the excellencies of God who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is the calling and the purpose for every one of God's people without exception. And that purpose, that job description is fueled and shaped by who you are. Chosen, royal, holy, belonging to God. So whatever your identifying statements, whatever you put on your name tag, however you describe yourself, as a student, as a little brother, as an engineer, as a mom, you're managing an IT department, you're serving meals of the Salvation Army, however it is you're living out your identity in those terms, your purpose, your destiny, if you will, as God's people is to proclaim the excellencies of God through those things and in those avenues and in those spheres and to those people that God has connected you with. Proclaiming the excellencies of God is not optional. And our identity is incomplete if we try to separate who we are and what we're called to do. We can't see ourselves as called and royal and holy without proclaiming the excellencies of Him. And so we do with purpose and humility. Because we recognize that we were once in darkness, but now we've been called to live in marvelous light. We were once not a people, now we are God's people. So as we continue over the next couple of weeks to unpack what it means that we share in this identity together, we hope it it, it strengthens who we see ourselves as God's people and what it means for us as we live here where he's called us to be. God's people are a called-out people. As we grow in our understanding of our identity, may God see us, how God sees us as his own. May God continue to find us faithful. May he continue to find us useful in all the places he has placed us to exclaim, to proclaim his excellencies and to make his name great. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. In your mercy, you have sought us out. Undeserving, and lost and wandering, and you have fashioned for yourself a people. And you are shaping us and conforming us into the image of your Son. Would you help us now as we confess to see with clear eyes who we are, and so as we proclaim your death in communion, we know that it's Christ that has purchased us so that we can partake in your life. Encourage us now as we continue in worship. In Christ's name, amen.